It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 216 or 330 octal D8X or 11011000 binary for Halloween, October 31st, recorded October 29th. I decided to call this first segment, What Kind of Camera Are You? You see, sometimes Adobe confuses me. There's Photoshop, Photoshop Elements, Photoshop Online, Photoshop Lightroom. Which application is right for which person? Until recently, I hadn't worked with Photoshop Online or Photoshop Elements. Although these aren't applications I'll be using, I can understand why Adobe created them and why they might be the right applications for you. As I worked with Photoshop Elements, I began thinking about cameras. Some people want a simple camera that makes all the decisions for them. Others want a camera that makes all the decisions but allows the user to overrule them. Still others look for cameras with advanced features, and some people want a camera that gives them total control. Well, the same is true for Adobe's photography products. So first, let's take a look at the different kinds of cameras, and you'll understand what I mean. Digital cameras have all but taken over the marketplace, so I'm not even considering any film cameras in this quick summary. There are four or five general categories of cameras for the consumer market, and another one or two added on to complete the professional market. At the low end, there's the basic point-and-shoot camera. These are devices intended for people who know nothing about photography and don't want to know anything about photography. You pay 25 to $100 for a camera like this, and it'll be the equivalent to the old Kodak Instamatic, probably a fixed focus lens, no zoom, maybe a built-in flash. Next up, point-and-shoot cameras with some controls. These cameras often have a basic type of autofocus, accurate exposure controls, at least a 1-3 to three zoom lens, and the ability to set various exposure modes. Uh, price range, figure probably 100 to $200. Then there are the mid-range advanced amateur cameras. These are bigger. They are sophisticated cameras with a lot of controls and zoom lenses with a 1 to 5 ratio or more, sometimes a lot more. These cameras are not single lens reflex cameras or SLRs, so the lens cannot be removed. Prices range from about $200 to around $1,000. The next group of cameras are what are considered consumer SLR cameras. Price range nearly coincides with the previous group of cameras, and the controls are similar, but the SLR looks and feels more like a traditional camera. You gain the ability to change lenses as needed, a faster shutter response, and in most cases a full optical viewfinder. Prices start around $500, and the top end of the consumer market is around $1,500. Then there are the professional SLR cameras. These look and feel a lot like the consumer SLR cameras, usually a little bit heavier. They will allow for longer bursts of high-resolution images. The body will be made from tougher materials, possibly titanium instead of plastic, and you can expect to pay $1,500 to $10,000. Last, and certainly not least, the professional high-end cameras. These are $10,000 and up. They are the cameras that are able to show the detail in the cavity of a gnat's tooth from across the room. For example, a Hasselblad H4D60 digital SLR camera, the body only, $40,000. It creates 60 megapixel, 16-bit images. Very few people are in the market for that kind of camera.
So how does this relate to Adobe? Well, Adobe's lineup isn't that wide, but it does cover all of the bases. The prices that I'll mention here are street prices for non-upgrade licenses. If you have an earlier version of the application, the upgrade price will be significantly lower. There is Photoshop.com, Adobe's online basic photo touch-up service. It's free. It's also surprisingly capable. It supports only JPEG images, so don't bother trying to upload a camera raw image. After uploading your images, you can crop them, resize them, modify exposure and color balance, fix red eye, modify the fill light, add cartoons or text, and then save the finished item back to your computer. Naturally, you'll need a high-speed connection. The cost? Pretty reasonable. Free. Photoshop Elements 9, which is the subject of today's program, costs about $90. There are currently some rebates available. We'll get the price down to around $75. Next in Adobe's lineup is Photoshop Lightroom 3, and I wrote about Lightroom 3 in early October. Although this workflow application can serve professionals well, it's also a superb tool for amateurs. It works very well in conjunction with Photoshop and Camera Raw. It costs about $270. Photoshop CS5 and CS5 Extended, these are the high end. I wrote about Photoshop in June. And at that time, I said it was everything you need and then some. If you need the ability to control your images at the pixel level, you need Photoshop CS5. Depending on whether you purchase CS5 or CS5 Extended, you'll pay $650 to $950. And again, keep in mind that those prices are for new, non-upgrade licenses. If you have a previous version, you'll pay a lot less. And I should mention Adobe Camera Raw. This is a plug-in. It comes with Photoshop and with Lightroom. I was surprised to find that it also works with Photoshop Elements if you attempt to open a raw file. Adobe Camera Raw makes it possible to pre-process images before you open them in one of the other editor programs. So it is included at least with Photoshop and with Lightroom. I'm not sure if it comes with Photoshop Elements. But if you have Adobe Camera Raw, it will work with Photoshop Elements. Previously, I've read some articles about Photoshop Elements. I've leafed through a couple of books on the subject, but I never downloaded a trial version. Having been thoroughly spoiled by having access to Lightroom, Photoshop, and Camera Raw, I can say with utter certainty that I won't be using Elements on a regular basis. But I can also say with utter certainty that anyone who wants to do more than is possible with the online service, but who doesn't want to spend time learning the intricacies of Lightroom or Photoshop, will be delighted with Photoshop Elements. Let's start with the import process. You can allow files to be imported with the camera's usually useless file name or modify the settings so that the images, when they arrive, will have names that mean something to you. That's a nice feature. You'll also want to set a main directory that will serve as the essentially the root for where all of your images will be stored. And then I would recommend using the option that creates a new subdirectory for each new batch of photos based either on the date the images were made or on the date that you imported them. In my case, I pointed to the location of my camera's memory card, allowed Elements to create a new directory, and then changed the names of the files that I had brought back from the Franklin Park Conservatory to FP Conservatory. Because this was the first batch of photos I had loaded with Elements, I was asked if I wanted to store my images at Photoshop.com. 
I decided not to because I handle backing up images on my own. But Adobe does provide two gigabytes of space for free. That's enough for, oh, 50 to 100 reasonably high-quality JPEG files, but only enough for about 20 RAW files. So you'll need to purchase additional space if you choose this option. Elements has an organizer view that allows you to see and rate your images. You can also apply tags to images so that you can quickly find, for example, all of the photos that include your pet aardvark and that are rated at least three stars. The first time Elements saw my wife, Phyllis, it asked me who this person is. When it saw another image that included Phyllis, it asked me if the person in the photo was Phyllis. I clicked yes, and Elements automatically tagged the image. Yes, there is face recognition built in. I selected an image that I wanted to work on, and the first thing I decided to do was crop the image so that it would be in standard 8x10 format. You can tell Photoshop Elements what the aspect ratio is, and it will enforce that aspect ratio when you crop. So if you want an 8x10, you can't crop something that is a size that won't fit in an 8x10. Once I cropped the image, I saved the file, and Elements saved the cropped image as a new file, which it associated with the existing image. Then I decided I'd like to add a light pencil sketch effect to the image. I did that by duplicating the background layer, applying the effect to the duplicate layer, and then setting the blend mode to make the effect fairly subtle. Now, don't misunderstand. There are a lot of things you can do with images in this program. But the modifications you can make inside Elements are nowhere near as robust as what you'll find in Lightroom or Photoshop. And the advantage of that is clarity and ease of use. The controls that are present are the ones that most amateur photographers will need to improve their images. They are not the controls that a professional will use to tweak some of the fine settings on their images. If you happen to return to the organizer while you're editing an image, the image that you're editing will be marked with a lock and the words edit in process in front of it. You can't do anything with the image in the organizer until you finalize the edit. As with many Adobe products, Elements offers a side-by-side -side view of your image as you modify it. And it offers you two ways to do the modification. You can use sliders to control, for example, exposure, move the slider to the right to make the image lighter, move it to the left to make it darker. Or you can have elements show you your original image and eight other examples, some lighter, some darker. You select the one you like and then fine-tune the modifications from there. There's a light table view that has a size control. You can, in effect, step back from the light table for a big overall view and then move in close to see just a few images that you want to concentrate on. I looked back through some of my older photos, and I found one that was taken nearly 10 years ago with a digital camera that had a built-in flash. This kind of flash often leads to a problem called red-eye. Fixing red-eye isn't a new feature, but it works exceptionally well. You select the red-eye correction tool and click once where the eye is red, and presto, the eye is normal. I found in one case that Elements did a little bit of overcorrection. It not only corrected the eye, but because of the positioning of my elder daughter's nose, it corrected a little bit of her nose, too. So a slight bit of additional retouching, it took about 15 seconds, was all that was needed to fix that problem. So at this point, you might be convinced that Photoshop Elements is a great bargain. Now would be the time for me to utter that famous advertising phrase, but wait, there's more. 
I had been working with some of the pictures that I had taken at the Franklin Park Conservatory, where there is now a hot glass exhibit. But one of the pictures I liked had an ugly yellow sign behind the glass artist. Now, my preferred method for removing the sign in this case probably would have been to crop the image. But for the purposes of this demonstration, I assumed that I needed to keep that part of the wall. And now, what do I do to get rid of that sign? Enter the content-aware spot healing brush. This is a new feature in Photoshop CS5, and it's little short of magic. I selected this image because I knew it would be a particularly difficult one for content-aware healing. The sign is on a brick wall, so there's a geometric pattern behind it. And the sign abuts a piece of metallic pipe. As a result, I had an image that would be almost impossible for the process to handle correctly, but it did a remarkably good job. There was one vertical line a bit wavy and one horizontal line that didn't work out quite right, and there were some yellow, few yellow artifacts around where the metal pipe was, but it had gone a long way toward making the correction that was needed. The process was good enough that it took me less than a minute to make some additional manual corrections. The key here is to make the best use of the tools by allowing the automation to take you as far as it can and then to perform any needed touch-up manually. Make sure you check the TechBiter Worldwide website and look at the final image. If you didn't know that there'd been an ugly yellow sign there, would you be able to spot the repair? I think you probably wouldn't. Well, then I tried a situation that's more like what most people would encounter using a, an image from the Olentangy bike trail. When I took the picture, I had waited for a bike rider because I wanted something to give the image a scale. But let's say this is a very busy bike path and you'd like a picture without any bikers at all. Content-aware spot healing does an absolutely perfect job removing a biker. Or how about this? Have you ever wanted to make it appear that one of your photographs exceeds the bounds of its frame? You'll really have to see this one on the TechBiter Worldwide website to understand. I had a picture of Katie in which she was holding an object that she had entered in the state fair several years ago. She was holding it in her hand up near her face, and I wanted the object that she was holding to actually be outside the frame of the image. Well, if you're a Photoshop expert, you could do something like that in half an hour, maybe 45 minutes. So I selected the image and asked Elements to guide me. The instructions along the right-hand side of the screen showed me what I needed to do, which buttons I needed to press, and five minutes later, I was done. Elements did all the hard work. Make sure you take a look at the final image and see all of the masks and layers that Elements added to create the effect automatically. How about a panorama? I had six images that I created at Worthington Estates Elementary School in 1998. The images were from a low-quality digital camera, at least low-quality by today's standards. The images were handheld, and automatic exposure was turned on. All very bad things if you're trying to do a good panorama. Back in 1998, I had created a panorama using a very expensive standalone application. So I pointed elements at the six images and asked it to merge them and create a panorama. It did. There were some large missing areas, and this, by the way, is perfectly normal and expected. In the past, I simply would have cropped out the blank areas, but Elements asked me if I wanted to fill in the blank areas. And the result earns one big wow. The top of the image had a tiny problem, and there was a bit of funkiness around the top of a flagpole. Elements didn't know quite what to make of the sidewalk in front as it got near the bottom of the image, but now the only cropping I needed was just a tiny bit, a few pixels at the top, and a small band at the bottom. 
it's a much improved panorama. And that's really just still the beginning. I haven't touched on using elements to share photos, and you'll have lots of options to do that. Nor have I mentioned some of the other creative effects you can apply to your photos. And elements includes a lot of them. I didn't mention content-aware scaling either, but it's also included. Without much by way of explanation, on the TechBiter Worldwide website, I'll show you a few other quick examples. One, a picture of the Brooklyn Bridge taken in 2002. It was leaning a bit to the right, and the color was wrong. It was an image that was taken in the morning. I wanted morning light. And in addition to leaning to the right, the bridge was leaning backwards because I'd had to point the camera up a bit. That created a keystone effect. Fixing all of these problems took just a minute or two. I did another out-of-bounds picture you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website done with one of the polar bears from the Columbus Zoo. And I took one of the lions at the Columbus Zoo and turned him into an Andy Warhol-esque poster. Remember the love poster? You'll recognize that. Next, I took a monkey that was sitting on a pole and made it appear as if the pole was coming out of a pool of water. And I took a picture from the Australia section of the Columbus Zoo and turned it into an image that looked like it might have been taken in the late 1800s. In previous programs, I've talked about the low-quality Chinese camera, the Lomo, and how you can create that kind of look if you want that. And some people do like that look. There's a filter built into Photoshop Elements that lets you do that. You'll see all of those on the TechBiter Worldwide website. I wanted to see how well Photoshop Elements would perform if I gave it a whole day's worth of images. A trip to the Franklin Park Conservatory provided that opportunity. There's a link to a slideshow from the TechBiter Worldwide website, and every image you see on that slideshow was processed by Photoshop Elements. So the bottom line is five cats, more power, fewer dollars. This is a nice combination. You might not expect much from an application that sells for $90 and can often be found for around $60 after rebate. But Photoshop Elements will surprise you. Elements doesn't offer the fine granularity that Photoshop's controls provide, but you'll find more than enough to repair, enhance, and share your photos. For more information, you can visit the Adobe Photoshop Elements website, and you'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And I do feel there is a bit of explanation needed for the rating this week. Five Cats is TechBiter's top rating. For its target audience, Elements clearly earns a five. If you are a professional who needs professional tools, Elements would score a 2 or a 3 when compared to Photoshop CS5 Extended. The two applications simply cannot be compared using the same scale. Back in the dark ages when I was a radio DJ, one of the program managers I worked for insisted that we exit each song with the station calls, the time, and the temperature. That was Bob Dylan with Subterranean Homesick Blues on the new WCOL. 44 degrees at 356. You know, that kind of stuff. Radio was important for that kind of information back then. But my cell phone takes care of the current time. And when I need to know the temperature or forecast, well, I can find that pretty quickly on the Internet. And there is no shortage of sites. The National Weather Service is the authoritative source for weather information. But it might not be the best source for you. All of the other weather sites start with National Weather Service data but they add features that you might find useful. If I specify the city where I live, which is Worthington, Ohio, the National Weather Service defaults to Riverly. Riverly? That's a tiny enclave that's surrounded by Worthington. 
If I put my Worthington zip code in, the National Weather Service suggests Columbus and shows the central part of the city, downtown. That's about 15 miles from where I live. The National Weather Service forecast goes five days into the future. You might expect better from the Weather Channel, but that site also says I live in Columbus based on the zip code, and its forecast, by default, covers only today and tomorrow. You can get a lot of other information, but the basic first-line look isn't sufficient. Weather Underground. This is the one that I use. It understands suburbs such as Worthington or Hilliard, but beyond that, the main page provides an exceptional range of information, including links to cities that I check occasionally. The forecast for the next five days and weather radar. For $5 a year, I can suppress the ads, too. $5. Very well spent. AccuWeather is the service you hear about the most on commercial broadcast stations, but it looks a lot like the Weather Channel. Worthington is considered to be Columbus, and there's a huge amount of screen real estate that is devoted to advertising. (laughs) No thanks. Yahoo, perhaps? Well, Yahoo uses the Weather Channel and fills the top half of the screen with ads. The forecast actually turns out being below the fold, off the edge of the screen, even if you have a high-resolution screen. Not going to use that one. How about CNN? Well, it doesn't recognize zip codes or suburban cities. I had to enter Columbus, Ohio, before CNN had a clue what I was asking about. And even then, it said it didn't know what a Columbus, Ohio was, even though it was displaying what it claimed to be the weather for Columbus, Ohio. And I did find another one that I liked, IntelliCast. It understands that 43085 is Worthington, so I like that. The main page shows only the weather forecast for today, but the service might be competition for Weather Underground. I'll have to spend some more time looking at it. In short circuits, we have just passed the one-year anniversary for Windows 7, and Microsoft says the operating system has exceeded Microsoft's expectations, selling nearly a quarter billion licenses. Given the flop that was Vista, Microsoft is pleased and perhaps more than a little relieved by the past year. Gabriella Schuster, general manager of Windows Product Management, says that overall the operating system exceeded users' expectations, and as a result, sales are about where the company thought they would be, even though the economy hasn't been very healthy. We delivered what we said we were going to deliver, said Schuster, when we said we would deliver it. Microsoft orchestrated the year well, starting with an event last year at the NASDAQ Stock Exchange. The rollout event was nothing compared to the Windows 95 rollout, but then that was an event unlike any other in IT history. Even so, the media buildup was substantial. In the past year, Windows 7 gained a 17% market share on computers worldwide. That amounts to about 1.2 billion computers, and more than 90% of new consumer PCs have been sold with and are running Windows 7. Unlike Vista, Windows 7 is an operating system that users are actually willing to recommend to their friends. Just as 14 months or so ago, I found myself recommending Windows 7 to you based on early experiences with the release to manufacturing code. Business users, many of whom are still using XP or the even more antiquated Windows 2000, have begun upgrading. General Motors, for example, now has more than 20,000 Windows 7 PCs and expects that number to reach about 80,000 by the end of the year. 
The date isn't certain yet, but Microsoft plans to release Service Pack 1 for Windows 7 during the first quarter of 2011. Don't expect any new features, though. The SP1 release candidate is on Microsoft's website. One thing that's unusual is that there will be no RC2 or RC3, as is usually the case. The next step will be released to manufacturing. Beta testers who have installed the previous version of the service pack will have to remove it before installing RC1. If you want to download and install the release candidate, it's on Microsoft's Windows 7 website. You'll find a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. The ISO file that you can use to burn a DVD is about 2 gigabytes, or you can download the 64-bit updater at 870 megabytes, or the 32-bit updater at 515 megabytes. The release candidate is certain to be nearly identical to what will be released in 2011, but I've decided to wait until the RTM code is actually ready. The most significant change is one that most people won't even need. The remote desktop client has been reworked so that it will be compatible with Remote FX, the remote access platform that comes with Windows Server 2008 R2 SP1. In addition to just one release candidate, the Windows 7 beta program was limited to a single beta that went out to testers in July. So assuming the schedule holds, you should expect to see the code available in February, following a late December or January RTM date. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.